Well, I really, really like to cook. I always have. If you know me at all, then I have probably shared this with you before, but I was a mama's boy growing up, which meant I spent more hours than you can count in the kitchen with my mom learning how to make meatloafs and cookies and cakes and those leftover, how you take leftover mashed potatoes and make them into homemade potato pancakes, all that really, really good stuff. Now, I'm also aware in a room this size that not everybody in here likes to cook. Some of you, you hate the idea of going to the store. You don't know what to buy at the store. And then you don't know how to properly use a knife. And then the thought of coming home after a long day of work and firing up the oven is the absolute last thing that you want to do. But in some weird way, I actually find it quite relaxing. Now, before you think I am better than I actually am, my family and I, we do not sit down to four-course meals every night. We, just like you, have our fair share of Pizza Hut and Chinese from the places that have the old faded pictures above the counter that I'm not sure are actually making anybody want to order the poo-poo platter. And in more times than I can count, have made entire meals out of butter pecan ice cream and potato chips. But I like to cook. And so I'm going to give you a tip this morning. For those of you who are also cooks in the room, this will be free of charge for you. But for those of you that do not know how to cook, just consider this an added benefit. Or as my friends in Louisiana would say, a little lanyap for you this morning. Now, there are certain ingredients that you can recover if they go a little bit too far. And any of us who have cooked know that there are also ingredients that once they're gone, they're gone. Let me give you an example. I personally like my steak cooked to a medium temperature. The internal temperature about 145 degrees, and you're, you're golden on steak. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she needs you to leave it on the grill for 10 more minutes until it gets really extremely well done. You've got to have napkins so you can get all the char off of your teeth, a big butcher knife out of the counter to, to cut into it. But in generally speaking, it's not that big a deal. Meat can be cooked at different, at different layers, different levels. Now, toast, on the other hand, not so much. Nobody wants well-done toast, okay? I mean, it's gone. It, you cook it too far, run in the toaster too many cycles, and it is gone. So to further prove my point, I actually want to show you a recipe that in my genius, I was trying to make this a couple of years ago. It looks really, really good. I'll have to go on record and say I'm not really sure that it is good because once you hear this story, you'll know why. But this is for a Southern Living sorghum caramel corn. Now this popcorn, it has bacon in it, peanuts, sorghum, which for those of you who are not from the country is basically just country sugar. Okay. So, I mean, it's this liquid sugar that's made from sugar cane, brown sugar, butter. I mean, all the good things. If you go down to step number two, it tells you that you need to melt butter in a large, heavy saucepan over medium heat. You stir in the brown sugar and the sorghum. You bring it to a boil. You stir it constantly. You stop stirring for about four minutes until that candy thermometer reaches 240 degrees. So what I did was put it on high heat, did not use a thermometer. I did time it, however. And after the end of the four minutes, what I had not realized is that I had let that brown sugar go just a little bit too far. And instead of testing it, I pour it all over the popcorn and the peanuts and the bacon. Instead of having this really ooey, gooey, southern living sorghum caramel corn, I now have an inedible bowl of burnt popcorn with bacon. And if I paused and took just half a second to think about that moment and that experience, what I unfortunately realized is that this cooking debacle, this cooking fiasco is all too often a, a, a strong parallel in my life and how I view certain situations. It's often how I view certain relationships. And it may be how you view relationships sometimes. And that principle is that some, once something is gone, it's totally impossible to recover. Once someone has hurt you, then it is impossible for you to 
recover or restore that relationship. Or for me, sometimes you think, well, I'm just so far gone, or if you knew my past, then you would know how disqualified I am for anything that God would ask me to do. And we fall prey to this line of thinking. Because it's true when it comes to cooking, and it's true when it comes to popcorn, but praise God, it's not the filter that God uses when he thinks about you and I. He does not view us through a filter that once something is so far gone, it is gone. Never to be useful again. Because often we would say, God, we are in need of a miracle, just like King Hezekiah was. And we know that although it seems really, really impossible, you are asking us to trust in you and that you're going to act on our behalf. But we say, I don't even know where to start. That situation seems so far gone that I'm not even going to start. Or God, I'm standing at a place of great influence in my life like King Asa, and you're asking me to engage culture and engage people in the sphere of influence that you have brought into my life for a purpose that's greater than myself. But there is no way that I know how to do that. So instead of trying, I'm just going to stop altogether. And then unfortunately, where many of us are is we relate to these principles on a purely personal level because we're deeply embedded in a life of sin. And we have past hurts and we have past failures that prevent us from seeing God's grace. And we believe that we are so far gone that we can no longer be useful here in this church or in the world. And all too often we think about ourselves like a tub of old burnt camel corn that is too far gone. No one wants it. It serves no purpose. And for all practical, for all practical purposes, it's garbage. And friends, this morning we're going to unpack a passage of scripture that was going to show us something different. As we continue in our series called The Kings, I would ask you to open your mind this morning to what it means to be restored, to repent, and to realize that you are never so far gone for God's grace and loving nature to extend directly to where you are this morning. Again, I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. I would ask you to pray with me as we dig into God's word and ask that it would speak to your heart this morning exactly as he would intend it to, so that we can walk away from this place more aware of his love, closer to the plan that he has for our life, and to view others the way that he asks us to view them as well. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for a chance to be here this morning. Thank you for a chance to dive into your word. I thank you for this story of King Manasseh, a story that is filled with difficulty, but also filled with grace. And I know that our lives reflect that. And we thank you that there is not a person sitting in this room that is so far gone. There is not a situation that we're dealing with that is so far gone that you can't intervene, that you can't give us the wisdom and the courage to do what you ask us to do. And I pray that that would happen precisely here this morning. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. And amen. If you're just joining us for this series, I would encourage you to actually go back and listen to the past couple of messages from Pastor Jeff and Pastor Nick as we have unpacked these stories of kings. Because over time, what you see is that there are certain kings that led the people of Israel to places of great prominence. They led them to a place of seeking God's favor, to asking God to show them what battles they should fight, how should they make the right decisions, how, what type of wisdom comes not only from ourselves, but most importantly from God. Now, the inverse of that is many of these kings were exactly the opposite. Instead of leading the people to the things of God, they led them apart from God. 
The people had been promised, the people of Israel had been promised a deliverer. They had been promised freedom. They had been promised that a Messiah would one day come. And yet the norm was often to take matters into their own hands. And they would seek to fill these God-shaped holes in their life with the things of this earth. And altogether would just ignore spiritual leadership. Because these kings had been entrusted to lead the people to the things of God. But yet, often, they led them as far away from God as the people had, in some cases, ever been. And our king of choice today is an interesting man by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh's story plays out in 2 Kings chapter 21 and 2 Chronicles 33. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and just turn to both of those passages of Scripture. We're going to reference both of them because they're both equally important unpacking this story today. And those words will also be up here on the screen behind me. Now Manasseh, he was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. His father was a man by the name of Hezekiah, who we studied last week. Now, Hezekiah was a great king. Hezekiah asked for wisdom from God. He acted. He believed that God would act miraculously for his people, and he did. He was really solid in faith. He had this real deep-rooted, sincere sense of expectancy. Hezekiah had destroyed so many of the altars to other false gods that had been built in generations before him. And upon his death, his son, 12-year-old son by the name of Manasseh, becomes king. And that's where we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 21, reading verses 1 through 16. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the abominations of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and reestablished the altars for Baal. He made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also worshipped the whole heavenly host and served them. He would build altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord had said, Jerusalem is where I will put my name. He built altars to the whole heavenly host in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He made his son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a great amount of evil in the Lord's sight, provoking him. Manasseh set up the carved image of Asherah he made in the temple that the Lord had spoken about to David and his son Solomon. I will establish my name forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I will never again cause the feet of the Israelites to wander from the land I gave to their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do all I have commanded them. The whole law that my servant Moses commanded them, but they did not listen. Manasseh caused them to stray so that they did greater evil than the nations of the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Since Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed all these abominations, greater evil than the Amorites who preceded him had done, and by means of his idols has also caused Judah to sin. This is what the Lord God of Israel says, I am about to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that everyone who hears about it will shudder. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line used on Samaria and the mason's level used on the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a bowl, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will become plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until today. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to the other. This was in addition to the sin he caused Judah to commit so that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. What an encouraging passage of Scripture. (laughs) In some ways, I think this passage kind of reads like how not to be a good king for dummies. 
Because everything that we loved about Hezekiah, Manasseh turned on in. He acted so evil. He rebuilt the high places that his father had destroyed. He established altars to Baal. He built altars in the Lord's temple. We're told in verse 6 that he practiced witchcraft and he consulted mediums and spiritists. He set up Asherah poles, which the Lord had specifically spoken to David and Solomon about. But above all that, he blatantly disobeyed the commands and promises of God. In verse 8, I will never again cause the feet of the Israelites to wander from the land I gave to their ancestors. If only they will be careful to do all I have commanded them, the whole law that my servant Moses commanded them. Because see, God intended for his temple to be a place where he was worshipped. And Manasseh had built an altar of idolatry there. God had promised them that my name is going to be established in this temple. And when that happens, the feet of the Israelites are never again going to wander from their land if they will only do what I've asked and commanded them to do. But verse 9, they did not listen. Manasseh caused them to stray so that they did greater evil than the nations that the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So Manasseh now takes them to a place where they are now doing worse than the nations that had been destroyed before them. And as you can imagine, God is very displeased with this course of action. God is very displeased with the leadership of Manasseh in this specific situation. And so he says, Manasseh, I'm going to bring disaster up on Jerusalem. I'm going to wipe you clean like I'm wiping clean a bowl. I'm going to hand you over to your enemies. And Manasseh, you're also not off the hook because you have shed so much innocent blood for your people, that it's on your hands now. And that sin that you have committed has actually caused Judah, your people, to commit sins. And so there's going to be some consequences for that. And you're going to have to take responsibility for that. Now, I don't know about you, but I realize that the older I get, the more that I realize I don't make decisions in vacuous ways anymore. Because there's always something else at stake. When I was 25 and single, it was not that big a deal to go out after work with friends and have dinner or go for a long leisurely weekend somewhere else or even to spend money on things that were a little more frivolous. Now, I have never been wealthy or never intend to be wealthy, but it used to not be that big of a deal to spend $100 on a concert ticket. Well, we're at a stage in our life now where $100 is a monthly payment to Centennial Hospital to pay off a baby bill which I have no idea why they are so high and why they charge that much for those services. But regardless of the stage of life that you are in, regardless of where you may find yourself today, the reality of the, the matter is that all of our decisions or our indecisions for that matter have effects on people. And from the story of Manasseh, we can glean in terms of our sin, our first point this morning, that the implications of our sin are always bigger than us. The implications of our sin are always bigger than us. Because of the life that Manasseh lived and that blatant disobedience within his leadership, the people of Jerusalem, were told, are going to suffer. And you and I should be keenly observing these truths from these sordid stories of these kings because what's happening is so many of them are making decisions that they think are harmless. But in all actuality, they are not harmless at all. And you may have explained some sin away in your life or you may have explained away certain situations or certain addictions or certain struggles and you think that you are completely in control and that you're never going to mess up again and that no one is affected by your actions or by your attitudes. And there is nothing that's farther from the truth, because your family is always going to be affected by your actions. 
Your workplace will be affected by your actions. And the people that are engaging in those actions with you also have families and workplaces that are going to be affected. And ultimately, as the church, the body of Christ, we're affected by it. Because my behavior and my actions either draw you closer to a loving creator God or they pull you away. And your actions have the same impact on the sphere of influence that God has entrusted to you. Something I've always found interesting about the life of Manasseh, however, is how he is wedged in between Hezekiah, this great king, and then he had a son named Amon who was not that great a king. But we'll skip on down to his grandson who was named Josiah, who was also a really, really good king. And you begin to ask yourself, how is it that Hezekiah could be so good, Josiah could be so good, but Manasseh stuck in the middle was so bad? And as I grappled with this, I began to think that, you know, the evil of a person is really magnified when you parlay it against two really good people. And that rational human side of me says, Manasseh, why were you so bad? And then we quickly realize that the sinful nature that you and I have knows no boundaries. The sinful nature that you and I have knows no boundaries. In fact, none of us are immune from temptation and sin. None of us are immune from temptation and sin. To the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. So there is no temptation that you will ever deal with that is not common to humanity in large. And undoubtedly, people that are sitting in this room this morning. And in essence, you're not exempt. You're not exempt from the ploys of the evil one. And you can know all the answers, have taken all the courses. But it doesn't make you exempt. Because Hezekiah, he was one of the greatest kings to ever live. And yet his progeny, his own son, messed up royally. But if you keep going in that verse, the end of verse 13, God, however, is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. So according to God's word, no matter what temptation that I'm struggling with, which is common to humanity, God is going to provide me a way to fight through that, to escape it. Because the truth is, God's word, spending time reading your daily steps, spending time praying, staying connected to the source, being engaged in community like you're engaged today, they help you. These are tools to help you resist the temptations, to resist the evil one. You're not ever going to be immune, but you can and will have the power to fight for what you know God wants to do in your life. Now, often in conversations with people, I will ask questions like, tell me about yourself, or are you a spiritual person? And sometimes in those, in those conversations, they'll say things like, well, my parents went to church, or my grandfather was a pastor, or um, my parents took me to church every Sunday when I was a kid. And all of those things are good, and we would encourage you to do all of those things. And those are very formative in the life of maybe your life or the life of your children. But the reality is those things alone do not make you immune. What those things do is they help you be grounded They help you develop discipline so that then when those sins come, when those temptations come, you are able to escape and you are able to bear it and to not fall into those traps. Now, if the message stopped right here and we closed it for the day, it would be really depressing and really discouraging. 
Because our stories do not have to be defined by the trappings of sin. And Manasseh's story did not have to be defined by the trappings of sin. In fact, if you'll turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 33, we'll see the closing piece of what happens here in Manasseh's life. In Second Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 9 basically reiterate what we have already talked about in Second Kings 21. But the story continues by picking up in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they didn't listen. So he brought against them the military commanders of the king of Assyria. They captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and earnestly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. He prayed to him, so he heard his petition and granted his request and brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. So Manasseh came to know that the Lord is God. After this, he built the outer wall of the city of David from west of Gihon in the valley to the entrance of the fish gate. He brought it around the Ophel and he heightened it considerably. He also placed military commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He removed the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's temple along with all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He built the altar of the Lord and offered fellowship and thank offerings on it. Then he told Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So because of this disobedience, Manasseh is now captured by the king of Assyria who binds him, shackles him. And at this point of distress, something really radical happens in Manasseh's life. Manasseh, this man who was one of the most wicked of all, he has this really good upbringing, but he turns his back on the things that his dad had done right. He builds altars to other gods. He sheds innocent blood in Jerusalem. He causes his people to sin greatly, but yet he seeks the favor of the Lord his God, and he earnestly humbles himself before God. Manasseh prayed, and God heard his prayer, and Manasseh came to know that the Lord is good. And from my human perspective this morning, I don't know what is more miraculous about this story. That Manasseh changed his ways after all these years, or that God actually forgave him. That's the human rational side of me coming out. And I say that because I know Manasseh's. And you know Manasseh's as well. People in your life that have continually disobeyed God, they have hurt others very deeply. They have hurt others beyond belief. They have performed egregious acts against you, egregious acts against society in general, and you have written them off. You have said, there is no way that they can be saved. There is no use even trying They're a big burnt tub of caramel corn that can't be recovered. And some of those people are in our family, and some of those people are in our workplaces, or some may be images that you see on TV that are a world away. But regardless of who those people may be in your life, we have to realize this morning that there is no limit to the forgiveness and grace God will show. There is no limit to the forgiveness and grace God will show. In Psalm chapter 103, verses 11 and 12, the psalmist David, love these verses, says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So ever how far east is from west is how far our transgressions have been removed. It's how far your transgressions have been removed. And when we realize that unlimited nature of God's grace and forgiveness, that those transgressions, those sins, those temptations are as far as the east is from the west, 
when we realize that, often what we find is that our response is just like Manasseh's. It's one of humility. Because we begin to understand God has done something for us that we could never do ourselves. God has done something for us that we're not worthy of. And so in a moment of humility, we thank him for who he is. Because when you're humble, you're often willing to listen. And when you're humble, you can often hear truth. And when you're humble, you don't have a clouded perspective or you don't have ulterior motives. And it's often at those really low points that we just humbly listen. Now, sometimes at our low points, we often do not humbly listen. A couple years ago, I was um, directing a camp here in Nashville, and um, I had something happen at a camp that you never want to, to see happen. Now, this is consequently a funny story, so I give you permission to laugh in advance. Something happened that you never want to see happen. It was really late. I was working in the office about two o'clock in the morning, finishing up this week of camp. And one of my staff came in and they knocked on the door and they said, Jason, we have a situation. We need you to come outside. There's a police car behind this building and one of our campers is in the car. And so I calmly walk outside and, and I go talk to the police officer and I say, well, sir, what's going on? He said, I need you to come and identify this kid to see if he is with your camp because there's lots of other camps that are and events that are happening on this campus. And so we just want to make sure to know who he is with. And I said, okay. I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, we were out doing our um, nightly rounds this evening. And as we're coming across the back of this building, our lights pan the crowd or pan the, pan the parking lot. And this kid is running straight toward us, stark naked. And I'm thinking to myself, they did not prepare me for this in training. I mean, they did not prepare me for this in training. And so, luckily, at this point in time, they, you know, they have, they've brought clothes to this guy. And I, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And so I kind of get in the car. And I'm on his level, face-to-face, through a cage, by the way. And I say, brother, what church are you with? Trying to understand who he's from. And he does the following gesture. And that is all it took for me. I said, sir, it is two o'clock in the morning. This situation could get no worse for you. This is the absolute worst that this situation could ever be. And so he chimed in, told me who he was with. He was with our group. Um, Now, they never hired me again to direct that camp, but um, he was with our group. And I thought in that moment, as I was already beginning to laugh about it, Humility was all this guy had. At this point in the game, that is all he had. That is all he could have channeled was humility because it could not have gotten any worse for him in that moment. But yet he chose arrogance and pompous nature. Manasseh, on the other hand, he he got it. He knew in this moment of deep depravity, I'm going to choose humility because I've been captured and I've been bound. And what happened is it began to unfold a series of events in his life that turned out to be good and turned out to be positive. And just like Manasseh, you may be at a really low point today or you may know someone who is at a really low place. And instead of just trying to get out of that place this morning, possibly you should consider humbling yourself and saying, God, I need you now more than ever because I got nothing left. I got nothing left for that person. 
I got nothing left for myself. I got nothing left for that situation. So God, I need you now more than ever. And I thank you, God, that there is no limit to your grace. And even though I have been on this really slippery slope, I need your forgiveness. God, help me to see a person like you see them. Because you see them, God, as someone who is made in your image and they have great value. Because what we find is often when we humble ourselves and allow ourselves to get into that line of thinking, we realize that there is nothing that God doesn't know about us anyway. He knows all of our flaws. He knows all of our ups and downs, all of our good, the bad, the ugly. He knows it all. And in spite of all of that junk, he loves us deeply. And he desires for us to repent of our sin and trust him with our lives. And that, my friends, goes for a king who was leading his people to a path of decimation. And that goes for a mom in Nashville who is just struggling to get by, who doesn't see the hope, who doesn't see what the next step should be. And you're not so far gone to where that grace is no longer available to you because that grace, it is a free gift that is richly extended to you and you earn it by giving up control of yourself. You earn it by saying, I'm going to take the control out of my own hands and I'm going to place them in the hands of a loving God who cares for me more than I could ever care for myself. Paul to the church in Rome said in Romans 5 chapter 8, that God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed us such great love and that love was shown to us not at our best moments, but it was shown to us at our absolute worst moment. While we were still sinners, God loved us. He demonstrated that for us. And while Manasseh was in the throngs of deep sin and separation from God and God's plan, and he was leading his people down a path that was so far from a God-honoring principle that so many, I mean, worse than so many of the kings before him, he had turned his back on the things of God. But in that moment, he met God and his life changed and his rule changed. If you go back to Second Chronicles chapter 33, picking back up in verse 15, you see that the next steps for Manasseh were a little bit more positive because he removed the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's temple, along with all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He built the altar of the Lord and offered fellowship and thank offerings on it. Then he told Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So when Manasseh repented and that transformation happened, it led to a change in his life. And as his heart was open to the things of God, his hands all of a sudden began to become very useful in the hands of God. And that begs us to ask that same question to ourselves this morning. Have we ever opened our heart to the things of God so that our hands and our life and everything about us from our core all the way out can be of value to the work the way that God intended it to be? As we close this morning, I want to read to you a quote from a renowned teacher and preacher of the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1940s, a man by the name of William Temple. He said, and I quote, the only thing of our very own which we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. The only thing of our very own which we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. And I don't know where you are this morning, but I know with a high degree of certainty that you're not here by accident. 
None of us are here by accident. And I also know that according to the Bible, God has a very rich plan for your life and a purpose for your life that is bigger than anything you could have ever imagined. Because that purpose is to know him. And that purpose is to make him known across this world. And friends, he is not finished with you yet. He is not finished with you yet. No matter how bad you have been, how much your past is rearing its ugly head, even as we're sitting here this morning, or how far you need to come. Because in our lives, we have all individually contributed to the sin. We've contributed the sin that makes our need for salvation oh so great. We're all bound together in that this morning. But we don't have to stay there. We do not have to stay there. We are all bound together in the sin that makes our need for salvation oh so great. But we do not have to stay there. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it impacts our lives. We thank you for the story of King Manasseh who, against what would appear to be from my rational human judgment, a person who could know and love you, you worked in his heart, Father, to soften his heart, to help him see the path that he was on was not one honoring to you. And I pray that you would help us to see that this morning as well. For those in the room who are struggling with a situation, someone is in their life that um, appears to be a modern-day Manasseh, I pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to say what they need to say. But more importantly, the faith to believe that you're going to act in a way that you need them to and that they're asking you to work. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to realize our need for you and that we have contributed the sin that makes our salvation so needed and so great. And I pray that this morning, before we leave this place, that that truth would pour over us and that we would trust you. Trust you when it doesn't make sense. Trust you with our lives. And that you would find us faithful as we seek to be the men and the women that you have called us to be. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen and amen.